Somebody Somewhere is a production of Rainstream Media Incorporated. This podcast investigates a murder that occurred in 2001. It is a true story, but the opinions of the hosts and interviewees are simply that, opinions, not facts. And the credibility of the witnesses and what they say is to be determined by the listener. Everyone is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Previously on Somebody Somewhere. We kept getting air ordinance directives from the FAA saying, be careful, right? And it looked like to a bunch of us, right, was that Bell was losing sales. I said, something really stinks here. This doesn't pass the smell test. The killer was familiar with Tom's property and his work habits, leading investigators to believe that this was a carefully planned execution. I don't understand why you're spending so much government money on this project, on this helicopter, because there's no merit in your case. This is episode 11 of season one, 204B or not 204B? That is the question. I'm your host, David Payne. Before we get started, a note to listeners. This is the first of two special epilogue episodes for season one. If it's been a while since you finished last season, you might want to re-listen to the season finale, episode 10, part two, or just come along for the ride. people out there who know who we killed will you. never give up our search for the truth. We will never I have no idea. Up. They could have been a, a vacuum cleaner salesman. I never thought I'd be here 15 years later. You there? Yeah, hey. Okay. Hey, so I went by the post office box and we have a letter. Yeah. And it's just taped up in this weird way and it's addressed to somebody somewhere. It's from 800 Independence Avenue Southwest. Stand by. Yeah. Can you look that up? Yeah. Hold on. And there's no, this post is put on it, but there's no stamp like that went through the post office. So what is 800 for opening? (laughs) David, it's the FAA, allegedly. It's allegedly from the FAA. Okay. Stand by. It's been a year since we released our last episode of Season 1. We're on the cusp of launching a new season about a new case with our new partners, Warner Media. But we keep getting sucked back into the whale's death investigation. And we've just received an anonymous manila envelope. So, where were you today? I made a run-up by our, our old post office box to see what might be in there. And I opened the box, and in there is a manila envelope. It's probably, what, eight and a half by 14. Yeah. So I get home. Yeah. I put on latex gloves. <laughs> as one does. As one does when you're opening a suspicious envelope. Mm-hmm. I open it outside. I've learned this from CNN back in the day when we got the anthrax. I open it, and to my surprise, there's a document. And it's from the Department of Transportation, specifically from the Office of Inspector General in DOT. And it's recapping an investigation of a guy named Frederick Wilkins, and specifically alleged violations of Title 
18 U.S.C. Title uh, 1001, which is making, you, making false statements. Yeah. Okay. When you lie to the police, when you lie to the FBI, when you lie to the government, that's the statute that everybody talks about, 1001. So this specific complaint alleges that this guy named Fred Wilkin, who worked for the FAIA, provided false information regarding his qualifications in order to be retained by the Department of Justice as an expert witness. Right. Okay. So where do we know expert witnesses from and where does it come up and how is it related with our case? Right? Right. Well, guess what he was hired to be an expert witness about? The airworthy certificates. Yes. Airworthiness certificates and the ability to retrofit 204B helicopters with civilian parts. Right. Okay. So the government is using... Now... I'm realizing you may have forgotten the reason why we're so amped up to receive this two-decade-old report about some expert witness who was accused of falsifying his helicopter qualifications. At the heart of the FBI's investigation into who killed Tom Wales was this one bizarre case that he had brought against four people and their two corporate entities, charging improper retrofitting of Bell military helicopters to make them look like Bell 204B civilian helicopters. This retrofitting was allegedly done by these helicopter operators in order to secure airworthiness certificates that would enable them to ferry passengers and sign lucrative government contracts for firefighting and the like. And in order to prove that these retrofits were illegal and improper, Prosecutor Tom Wales would need an expert witness. So... The interesting, before I get into the facts of this guy and the false claims that he's alleged to have made, note who the memo is copied to. Right. Do you see that? Yeah. And this is, what, 10 months before Wales died. Sure. This memo is going to the Seattle U.S. Attorney's Office. Yeah. So it would have either gone to Wales, his boss, Bob Westinghouse, or possibly the U.S. Attorney in Seattle. But it went to his office. It also went to two people at Maine Justice in Washington. And it's being generated and circulated at the same time that Wales is bringing his indictment against Steve Jackson, the pilot, Intrex, Kim Powell, Chet Raspberry, all the people that we have sure. talked about in this case. So that's the context. Right. And that's what's fascinating about this report. And that's why I think somebody sent us this report. Right. And we had a pretty good idea who. When we last left this case, our thinking about who killed Tom Wales had crystallized along two lines. Either the pilot did it, as the FBI seemed to believe, or he didn't do it. The pilot certainly made for an attractive suspect. He was outwardly angry at Wales for prosecuting him in the helicopter case. And his friend Bruce McClung had told the FBI he owned the type of handgun, a Makarov, that the FBI believed was used to murder Wales. But remember when I asked even the most sourced and knowledgeable reporters in Seattle, Steve Militesh and Mike Carter of The Times, to explain the FBI's possible case against the pilot? You guys have been reporting on this case now for 16 years. You know the case probably better than anybody knows the case in terms of civilians. Can you lay out for me the FBI's case against the pilot, what that looks like? What are the pieces of that? Boy, that's... Let's think about that a minute. Um, 
Um, in like a summary fashion. Yeah, that's hard to do. Let me phrase it a different way. What is the strongest case you could make against the pilot? Proximity, motive would be their strongest ability. I think maybe some of the things that Bruce McClung told them. They have an individual who was prosecuted by their victim, who was angry at their victim. We know that. That was the information we were getting. Those were the leads that we followed. The leads Carter and Militesh followed from the feds led only one direction, towards the pilot, who had been zealously prosecuted by Wales and who was the most likely source of the report we received. You see, this report was part of the sealed records in his malicious prosecution case against Wales. But put that aside for the moment and think about where the FBI got their leads. Now that was a very interesting paradigm. You see, it was natural that the FBI would look at Wales' cases to see who might have had a grudge against him. And if you were looking at this helicopter case and needed background on the players, the first place you would turn would be the FAA officials who had brought that case to Wales in the first place. The weird conspiracy would be, like, there's there a bunch of FBI and FAA people sitting here trying to trap the pilot, and one of those people in that room is the actual conspirator who killed or killed or got someone killed. And so that person can completely keep leading the investigation in the wrong direction. So they got That's Bharat Sham, a friend of Tom Wales and former board member of Washington Ceasefire. Bharat binge listened to the podcast and reached out to us immediately after he finished to give us his perspective on Tom. And you had a very visceral reaction to season one, and I just wonder if you can describe what that was. Yeah, I might ramble a little bit because I know that you folks are good at editing, but the possibility that he was driven by some kind of personal profit motive from Bell Helicopter was the, you know, you were a journalist, you followed the thread and it wasn't fully tied up. And so to me, if you had asked him at any time in his life, you know, on his deathbed, would he have liked to have left $100 million for his kids or left a good name? To me, it's pretty clear, like, what would have stood out. Like, you know, every time without fail, he would, I think he would have chosen honor and a sense of service and doing the right thing. And I think that's just who he was. That's how he was brought up or whatever. But that's who he was, yeah. Barat was one of several of Tom's friends who approached us after the season one finale to assure us that Tom Wales they knew wouldn't have taken money under the table. We had spent a year pulling at the threads of who would want Tom Wales dead, and one of those threads involved allegations of government bribes in connection with a series of coordinated actions by FAA, DOJ, and Bell Helicopter Textron related to the grounding of Bell 204B helicopters. The FBI had zeroed in on the one helicopter case that Wales had prosecuted before his death, because they believed one of the defendants was acting odd and was so angry at Wales for prosecuting him that he would have had a motive to kill him. But through another lens, it was the behavior of the FAA and Wales himself that looked peculiar. Why were they so focused on this random Bell helicopter? It was something that confused CNN legal analyst Jeffrey Tubin when he first covered the story, too. It's just a bizarre case, and I had no idea 
that the underlying conduct was even a crime. And Whale's fixation on it was kind of bizarre because it wasn't like was accused of stealing from people, hurting people, even placing people in real danger. It was this peculiar case about how and whether you can retrofit helicopters. So the question was, what was motivating Tom Wales? One of the things that was so curious to us was why Tom pursued this case with such vigor. And I'm wondering if there's anything about his personality that suggests a reason for why he was so vigilant about that. If he was interested in making money, he could have quit right then and joined a private law firm, become a partner, and like taken a 10x increase in, in his compensation, right? So there's no reason for him to do it by getting 50 grand, 100 grand from some Bell helicopter. And the thing is, having worked in uh, a large corporation and then having worked in government, you don't really need to, you know, if it's air safety, if it's safety and, and law and order, and you don't need to bribe a bunch of people like Tom. You just show up with emotional and fact-based arguments saying, like, we are the people who build these helicopters, we know how to keep it safe, and a bunch of yahoos, cowboys are out there repairing and selling these things. Why would you need anything else? And while that made sense to me on its face and could explain how Tom got sucked into this one case, it didn't explain the behavior of FAA officials not only in this case, but as we would learn later, on efforts to ground scores of other 204B helicopters at a time when it was so clear that their focus was more appropriately placed elsewhere. Center Alaska 261, we are in a dive here. On January 31st, 2000, two and a half years after the Seattle FAA had begun its investigation into Intrex helicopters, and eight months before Tom Wales would indict the person the FBI continually suspected of being his murderer, one of Alaska Airlines' jets would plunge into the Pacific Ocean, an airline that was under the regulatory jurisdiction of the same Seattle FAA field office that was busy screwing around with retrofitted helicopters. I'd been with the airlines, and I, having been a pilot, I knew and saw what cheating was all about. <laughs> and, you know, because a lot of the airlines take shortcuts. And so I had firsthand exposure to that, and I knew what could happen. It sure enough, it did in 2000. Another person we met after season one was a woman named Mary Rose Diefenderfer. She was not only a pilot, but a semi-famous one. The first female pilot certified to fly the Airbus 320. And as an FAA inspector in the Seattle field office in the late 1990s, she was the perfect person to provide context for what was happening inside the FAA when all these helicopter cases were going down. What happened in 2000 that... There was a fatal crash of Flight 261, Alaska Airlines Flight 261, killed 89 people. Let's go to the day you learned about the Alaska 261 happening. Where were you? That's a day I'll never forget. It was January, so it was dark. It was like late afternoon, and I was in the parking lot of a shopping center, and my former husband called me and told me about the crash, and I was sick. I cried. I immediately cried. I had just an ache in my stomach because I knew this would happen. 
It just made me sick that these people were getting away with this stuff. And just tell a little bit about the accident so that our listeners understand. Okay. So they took off out of Mexico, and somewhere en route close to Los Angeles, the pilots began experiencing a problem with the flight controls. And they elected to fly on to Seattle. And maintenance control came back and asked them to do certain tests on the airplane with passengers. And that's when the jack screw broke and the airplane spiraled, inverted into the ocean and killed everybody. Wow. As the principal inspector of Alaska Airlines for the FAA, Mary Rose witnessed firsthand both the coziness of Seattle's inspectors to industry officials, as well as the lax oversight being provided. And years before the crash that killed 89 people, she blew the whistle. I discovered some pilot training irregularities and the FAA removed me from my position, put me in the regional office, and the same type of irregularities came up and I was once again removed until I was forced out in November of 1999. So this is prior to whistle. Mary Rose's 10-year-long story of how she became a whistleblower and how the FAA would retaliate against her is worthy of its own podcast. But what is relevant to this story is her inside view of the culture in the Seattle FAA office at this critical point in time when the FAA was spending time and millions of dollars of resources chasing these random Bell helicopters across the Western United States. What do you attribute this cultural situation between the FAA and Alaska Airlines about that led to these fatal accidents? I've always suspected maybe there were favors, including money changing hands, but I've never been able to prove that. But I know there were some really, really close friendships and friendships outside of the office. And that manifested itself by the Alaska Airlines management talking to our management who put the squeeze on the inspectors. How often did that happen? It happened pretty regularly, and more as time went on. It seemed like any time that we had any issue at all, we were told to stand down, give Alaska what they want. Our job was to give the airline what they wanted and support their business. It was not... Mary Rose paints an unsurprising picture of the FAA's coziness with the businesses they were supposed to regulate. And similarities clearly appear with the agency's interactions with and supplications to Bell Helicopter Textron in the late 1990s. But there was also something more insidious in there. It's really easy for the attorneys and the management to attack small operators and single individuals like shooting fish in a barrel. And they can say they're very successful because they perform their regulatory due diligence by putting this operator out of business. You rarely see them going after the big operators because it's just very political. The little ones are not political. I could understand wanting wins. Every organization looks for them. But what I couldn't understand was the extraordinary lengths the government would go to get one. This helicopter case that Tom Wales had brought against the pilot and his partner, Kim Powell, and for which he was being personally sued over for bringing in the first place at the time of his murder, had introduced us to all sorts of characters whose lives had been upended by the government's search for a win. 
One of those folks was former helicopter mechanic, Ricky Boatwright. Hi, is this Ricky? Mr. Boatwright? We have literally flown 2,000 miles to see if we could come talk to you for 15 minutes. We're down in Perdon. Ricky Boatwright had gotten tangled up in this mess, not because he owned or operated a Bell helicopter, but merely because he worked on one. And seven years after he put down his wrench, Boatwright would find himself named as an unindicted co-conspirator with Kim Powell and Steve Jackson in a plea agreement drafted and signed by Intrex Helicopters and Tom Wales. Did you know after this happened that they had put your name in this plea agreement? Did somebody contact you? Or- nope. Don't know nothing about no plea agreement. Was the first time that we showed it to you? That's was the first, first time, time I ever saw it. This specifically says that you got together to falsify the books and change the records. No. Right. What we did was we took records of the other mechanics that had done work on the airplane, right, and verified it and stuck it together, right? And I signed off on a logbook saying I certified that this is a Bell 204B helicopter in number so-and-so, so-and-so. Boatwright wouldn't be the only one to witness the aggressive government investigation of this single 204B helicopter. In fact, one of the things that was always a red flag for me was how fast Seattle FAA Inspector Bill Reichardt had moved when John Hearn alerted him there was a half-built helicopter in his Linden, Washington hangar. Reichardt, I believe his name was Reichardt. He got in a car and was out there from the time he left Seattle or Renton he was there probably in an hour and a half. Were you surprised by that, that they responded yeah, so quickly? Yeah, I was surprised. It was a Huey and everything. And, you know, I, I thought he'd just kind of come out maybe in the next day or two. Did he say why he came out so quickly? No, he wanted to look at what I had. I showed him. He got on John Hearn was yet another character who had gotten swept up in the FAA's curious investigation of the pilot and Kim Powell's 204B helicopter after his business partner had rented workspace to them. So they, they come out there, they tell you to lock it up, and then... Lock it up, don't touch nothing. They took things apart, and they put it back exactly the same way while I was sitting there having coffee watching. Did they explain to you what was happening at the time? Nope, they just told me you didn't see nothing, you don't know nothing. Were you suspicious, or...? Oh, hell yes, I was suspicious. And while the FAA's behavior in this single Bell helicopter case was indeed suspicious we wouldn't understand how it fit into the larger picture until we met with Bob Chadwell, the criminal defense attorney for one of the pilot's co-defendants. Anybody, any operator, anywhere that Bell believed was about to make use of this big supply dump and all these helicopters was going to cut into Bell's profit margin. So there were cases in several places that Bell had pushed for and a lot of times it was the FAA acting on behalf of what Bell had provided them. But always in the background, I think if you dig back far enough, you're going to find that the initial motivation is Bell trying to prevent people from making use of these parts. It would make a lot more sense to me if there was this massive helicopter repair operation going on somewhere and you got to shut it down. But it is literally one 
helicopters? Well, that's what it was here. But then there was one here, and there was one here, and somebody got one through over there. So from some people. So that may have explained Bell's motivations, but how could we explain Tom's? We heard his friend's descriptions of his character, of his rigidity in the face of wrongdoing, and his sense of justice. But I was still struggling with both why he was so zealous and what the larger picture really looked like on these efforts to ground Bell 204B helicopters. And to learn more, I'd have to get on a plane one last time. Head northwest on El Camino Real toward Vista Avenue. David, tell everybody where you've been. So I took a little drive into a small little town up in the Bay Area where I met with a man and his wife who used to be in the helicopter business. Mm, My favorite topic, the helicopter business. Their story was the exact same story as Kim Powell and Steve Jackson. They owned a single 204B helicopter, Mm -hmm. and it was as if you know, the wrath of God came upon them. They were sued by the Justice Department. They were sued by the Forest Service. And guess who shows up in all of these cases? It's the same cast of characters. You're kidding. No. So they owned a helicopter company for many years, for like 20 years, where they had multiple helicopters. Mm -hmm. And they decided to simplify their life. They were getting ready for retirement, and they bought one 204B, and they would go to fight forest fires. And they had a excellent reputation in business, and they had contracts with the National Forest Service, and then all of a sudden in the late 90s, everything changed. So I noticed you have about six inches worth of documents that you've brought back, so I'm going to dig into those, but sort of give me some highlights. This couple spent eight years fighting the government, in multiple pieces of litigation. There was a note on one of the documents that there were 23 boxes of files at their attorney's office in storage. And so when we came calling, they had to have been uh, like opening up an old wound. Totally, totally. In fact, I'm not using their names at the moment. They are deeply traumatized and scarred by their fight with the government. So we need to dig in and figure out how this connects to all the other work we've been doing. Well, there's direct connection in a number and of And dig in, um, we would. One, it's the, same. the firefighting couple that was so gracious to share their documents with us also wanted to lay low. So if we were going to figure out how their experience was connected to the helicopter case at the center of the whale's death investigation, we would have to get creative. What did she share about their attorney's The only one that might still be around is Chris Ingram and his paralegal, they said, was really knowledgeable. Got it. Okay. So we'll debrief after you. And while lawyer Chris Ingram would indeed still be around, he wouldn't exactly be the easiest guy to connect with. So did you try the URL for Zoom? Did that I I would if I closed this thing. It's on your face, I guess. Input should be set to internal microphone and output should be set to external speakers. You hear me now? Should I um, change some wiring in the back of the Mac Mini? Chris Ingram is a former lawyer, lucky enough to no longer have the need for any highfalutin technology. I'm an ISA certified arborist and I'm an APA certified aesthetic pruner. So I do 
a very high-end aesthetic pruning of Japanese trees in gardens and landscapes that they really care about around here. So what did you think when you got David's email? Oh, it was it was interesting. It was just a it was an interesting flash from the past because I occasionally do think of the case and the things that we did and established in it. And whenever I read about Department of Justice actions or Bell helicopters, I'm always on alert. I went downstairs and I was beaming and my wife said, what's going on? I said, well, I just read my 87-page trial transcript and my 43-page reply brief and I crushed them. God, I did it. <laughs> she was like, oh, honey. <laughs> That's awesome. Maybe we'll have sex. <laughs> Good luck with that. Uh, uh, we'll, we're counting on you. In addition to being a bit of a cut-up, Ingram cut quite the figure as a high-powered Bay Area lawyer in the late 1990s. He was hired by the firefighting couple in California in their lawsuit against the U.S. Forest Service to recover fees in a contract dispute. And he witnessed firsthand just how heavy-handed the government could be. And I've actually, you know, to tell you the truth, David, after this, I was a liberal to begin with, but this opened my eyes wide. Now when I read that somebody has been indicted by the federal government, some poor fossil hunter somewhere that strayed off the the beaten path, I think, oh, yeah, I know what they're going to do to him. They'll hire anybody. They'll say anything. They'll do anything. They'll dig records. They'll create evidence. In fact, Ingram was so disturbed by the government's actions in the case he handled that he eventually quit practicing law altogether. This case was a very, very difficult, an uphill battle from the very start. The judge hated me, didn't trust me, didn't trust my firm, didn't trust my client. And it was as if they were all just waiting for us, the Department of Justice and the Court of Claims. And even though this case was about a contract dispute, just like in the Wales helicopter case in Seattle, the underlying driver would be a sustained and coordinated effort by the FAA, U.S. Forest Service, DOJ, and Bell Helicopter to ground a single 204B. One of the things that I can't quite connect the dots on is that this was a U.S. Forest Service dispute, and somehow in the middle of it, Bell rears its head and provides this defense for the U.S. Forest Service not to pay the $200,000. Bell had started this program about the reinterpretation of the rules about rebuilding used helicopters and using used parts, etc., and that we just fell into it. Yeah, I just couldn't understand, though, what on earth Department of Justice attorneys were doing in the middle of this. And it was not a lot of money. Right. And not by justice standards. It was for us, obviously. But, yeah, what raised suspicions was how unwilling the DOJ was to listen to reason and how, what lengths they were going to, to twist evidence and make arguments that did not make sense. Paint a picture of how much money was spent in this litigation. Oh gosh, it was well over a million on our side. I expect it should be at least that much on the government side. Over a $200,000 contract claim? Yeah, I'm sure. More even, because most of it doesn't get caught up. It would be, I would say, at least 10 times the amount originally in dispute was spent by both parties in this.
As lawyer Chris Ingram recounted this ancient contract dispute case, it wasn't just the money that was spent that didn't add up. It was the fact that the government was pitting the full force of its most powerful institutions against this couple. And rather than fight the contract claim on its merits, the Forest Service and DOJ were deploying the same argument that was being used in the Wales helicopter case. They claimed that it had been a military Kiwi helicopter that had been illegally converted to a civilian aircraft. And they denied him the payment and said, not only do we not owe you the 200000 you owe us millions of dollars in repayment and penalties for all the money we paid you because you've been lying to us for six years. Had you ever heard of this issue of retrofitting helicopters? No. And your, well, your reaction when you first learned that that was the government's position was what? That they were insane, that they had certified it themselves. We had, we had six years of FAA certifications. We had certifications from every repair station that had ever worked on it, and they had all been certified by the FAA. There wasn't an iota of uncertified or questionable paperwork at all. And it's all madness to begin with because the contract is not for a helicopter, it's for the services of a helicopter. And they provided all those services. They could have been made of cardboard, but because on the floor... These were rational lawyers and investigators making irrational choices. And I couldn't help but be suspicious why. Only if you looked at the larger picture could you spot the common players. William Reichardt, he's a he's an inspector up in the Seattle area who was brought down to our trial at the very, very end. He was also the FAA inspector who was so intent on grounding the 204B of Kim Powell and Steve Jackson, the pilot. I mean, he was shoved in at the very end of the rebuttal witness, and they managed to qualify him, but only as to his own expert personal process. They were trying to get him to say, to speak on behalf of all of the FAA and what the requirements were and make them all by himself. And the bigger picture would also reveal a coordinated effort by the FAA and Bell that was much larger than their single case. When they found out that Bell had an internal list of 25 Bell 204Bs that they said were completely false and needed to be taken out of the air, and another two of those helicopters that were possibly fake helicopters. My clients immediately demanded that Bell send a representative out and finish this once and for all. Are we or are we not suspected? Of course, neither Ingram nor his clients would appreciate until much later that it wasn't that simple. And it was a bigger thing than I was going to be allowed to present. The judge was very clear that she didn't want to hear anything about the conspiracy. And I'm smart enough to know that that's how you lose a case. I just wanted to win my case. And the the conspiracy loomed out of the fact. She saw it in the end. She saw it in the end. When you say they were in cahoots, give us sort of your take on what the evidence was or what it felt like being there that they were working together. Well, you know, trial is a stylized war anyway, so we're on a war footing and we're suspicious of every piece of evidence and every witness. And we're we're crisscrossing what their testimony with what they've seen that they've written, with what we've seen that they've written, what others have written, what the regulations say. And we're digging behind the people who are being presented to make the government's case and finding out that they really don't have 
the basis to make that, that they really are stretching and creating testimony, just making things up that are in line with Bell's own viewpoint on things. And that there had to be, I didn't know why the DOJ was helping Bell market its helicopters in this nefarious way, because that's what the whole plan was, to sell more Bell helicopters and more Bell parts. And the good news is, at least with respect to this case, the court would see through it. The judge would handily reject the government's claim that the helicopter in question wasn't a 204B, and she awarded the disputed fees to Ingram's clients. And it ended up being the case that I'm most proud of in my 20-year career practicing law because we beat them, and we beat them badly against an uphill current, and we were able to prove things that were very difficult for us. You know, it ends up all being about money. It very rarely ends up being about justice. And unlike the pilot's malicious prosecution case against Tom Wales that was at the heart of the FBI's suspicions about him, Ingram was successful in getting even more than the win in his underlying case. Then I went back and applied for something called the EJA fees, which is this arcane rule that if you somehow can beat the government and then go back and show that the government really had no case to begin with and prosecuted you anyway, if you can achieve that level, then they will, the government will pay you back your attorney's fees. And we got more than half a million dollars in attorney's fees back. Wow. As senseless as this attack was of the firefighting couple in California, it would pale in comparison to the one that struck in Seattle in 2001. And if we were gonna to get to the bottom of who killed Tom Wales, we could no longer afford to follow the feds. We'd have to follow the money instead. Next week on Somebody Somewhere. I saw a document with a bell letterhead. It said, per your instructions, the following people have been paid they carried guns, and they were very strict, stern guys. We received the attached anonymously. We don't know if it's real or if someone made it up. Does the name Helen Petty mean anything to you? And now, just seeing that he just paid 500 grand, there's no case that's worth paying 500 grand to an expert. If there was something hanky-panky here, he would have been all over and trying to expose it. Life's a foolish game. Do you ever feel the same? Well, maybe we could change Turn the ship another way Somebody Somewhere is written and produced by Jody Gottlieb and me. It is a production of Rainstream Media Incorporated. Sound design, editing, and mixing has been provided by Resonate Recordings. Every week, they're bringing their A-game, and we couldn't have done it without them. Check them out at ResonateRecordings.com. A Foolish Game is written and performed by Snowflake. An original score and voiceover work is provided by Hallie Payne. Social media videos and artwork provided by Kendall Payne. If you have any information regarding the Tom Wales case, please contact us via our website, sbswpodcast.com. And finally, if you enjoyed this podcast, please like and rate us on iTunes. It really helps. Thank you for listening. <laughs>